Hello, everyone. This is Salman Askari. Welcome to Talk Iran, a podcast dedicated to discussing Iran-related issues. In this episode, I speak with Holly Dagris. Holly is an Iranian-American Middle East analyst. She's a non-resident fellow with the Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Currently based in Jerusalem, she is also the editor of Scowcroft Center's Iran Source blog and the curator for the weekly newsletter The Iranist. Holly has been interviewed on BBC News, CNN, Fox News, NBC News, and in the New York Times and Washington Post. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including Al Monitor, the Atlantic Council, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Foreign Policy, and the Huffington Post. She's also called upon to consult for foreign governments and private entities, including investors and rights groups. Holly and I talk about her background, her time in Cairo, the recent protests in Iran, Reza Pahlavi and other alternatives to the Islamic Republic, and of course the Trump administration. Holly has similar viewpoints to other recent guests that I've had on, meaning she's on the reform side of things. To make sure I have different perspectives being presented on the podcast, I've reached out to people who have opposing viewpoints, people who are calling for the near-term ouster of the Islamic Republic, for example. I'm planning on having several of these people on the podcast soon. I'd love to hear their thoughts on how various regime change scenarios could play out. I do want to make one thing clear. I think the Islamic Republic is not a good system. I'm disheartened that Iranians have to live under a theocracy. That there are major economic, social, and environmental challenges, many of which exist as a direct result of the regime's policies and inadequacies. But I also believe that there are better ways and worse ways when it comes to improving the lives of Iranians for the long term. That's exactly the reason different solutions and viewpoints have to be heard and evaluated fairly. So thanks for your patience while I try to diversify the viewpoints presented on the podcast. Before we get to my conversation with Holly, I wanted to note that the audio is a bit muffled and there is some background noise at various points, but I think you can still hear what Holly is saying relatively clearly. Anyway, apologies in advance for the less than perfect audio on this one. All right, let's get to it then. I now give you my conversation with Holly Dagris. I'm here with Holly Dagris. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Salman. Yeah, absolutely. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your background? What do you spend most of your time doing now? And what made you become interested in the subject of Iran? Well, I'm Iranian-American. My mother is an Iranian immigrant. My father, originally from Wyoming. Um, Long story short, I guess I I have to give the the short version of my life story because if I don't, then it's kind of confusing how I got interested in Iran. Um, My parents divorced when I was five, and my mother ended up marrying a fellow Iranian just as I was turning 12. Um, after about six months into their marriage, he decided we should move back to Iran. And in February 1999, I moved to Tehran, not very aware of world affairs or actually what Iran was all about. I had visited the summer before, and I wasn't really a fan. Um, I was tall then as I am now, which is about five foot ten, so I had to wear a headscarf. And back then, they were slowly making them colorful, but I had showed up in Tehran with this long, ugly black thing, and I hated wearing it, having been a Southern California girl right. all my life, wearing shorts and whatnot. 
So I, I, I went into Iran with this big culture shock. I didn't understand it. I actually hated it, especially when I would watch state television at my step-grandmother's house because she didn't have a satellite television for because her building was like in a big um, complex off of the Shaykh Arab Square where everybody could see a satellite dish. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't hide it. And so I'd watch like maybe burning American flags on television. And it's just a lot of propaganda. And I just found myself really hating and disliking Iran and its government and just a lot of also bad family things had happened at the time. Yeah. So I, I found myself with little interest in the country. But as time went on and we, we stayed there longer, I started learning, I would say, essentially Iran 101, its history and the culture. Um, I started realizing that not all, Amer- not all Iranians hate America. In fact, they love Americans and that they love um, a lot of pop culture stuff that I did at the time and that they're super friendly and that um, Iranians are very cultured and they understand um, a lot of what's happening in the world. Um, There's a reason there was a 1979 revolution. And I was learning bit by bit a lot of the things that the Shah had done at the time that had led to the 1979 revolution. So slowly but surely, in the span of seven years that I was there attending Tehran International School, I fell in love with the country. And during those years, I happened to be there when 9-11 happened and when Afghanistan and Iraq was invaded. So I became very um, interested in world affairs and why the United States was involved in wars and shouldn't have been involved in. And I also was there when Ahmadinejad became president. So I, I remember the day when he came out with the centrifuges and said that Iran has a night right for um, nuclear energy. So it was very um, fascinating from a political standpoint and a historical standpoint as well. And I remember at that time in 2006, there was a sense that a war was impending and that Iran was going to be next. I ended up eventually moving back to the U.S. to go to college Mm -hmm. and um, following a career um, in studying political science. At the time, I didn't see myself actually working on Iran or anything. I was just going to be a a visitor, visit my family and my friends. But it was when I went back to the U.S. I realized that, wow, we really don't understand the Middle East. It's as bad as as it was in the beginning of 9-11 after so many years. And I I went to UCLA, graduated there, um, decided I wanted to be a Middle East analyst. Uh, Again, still not interested in Iran. And I ended up getting my master's degree in Cairo at the American University there because um, I realized that why should I be studying Middle East politics in America when I can go there and witness the Arab Springs transition from dictatorship to democracy in Egypt's case. And so it wasn't until I actually went to Egypt that I realized, wow, they also don't understand Iran. And I found um, a lot of Egyptians always ask about my background and about Iran and what it's like. Is it like Afghanistan? Is there Taliban everywhere? Why do you guys wear burqas? Just real basic questions that Americans would oftentimes ask us, ask me. So it was then when I realized um, I need to kind of address this. I'm in a unique position as somebody that had grown up in Tarantulas and Tehran to actually go down that path. And I found myself um, kind of focusing on Iran, more writing on Iran, and tweeting on Iran. I joined Twitter at the time. Yeah. And 
it just kind of fell into my lap and it made me want to be a neuron analyst. And so here I am talking with you about all of this. Really, really cool story. Uh, really fascinating that Egyptians kind of have those perceptions about Iranians. So were you in Cairo during the height of the, the Arab Spring protests? I actually um, went in six months afterwards, so in August 2011. But I, I was there for the coup in 2013, led by um, Sisi, uh-huh. who's now president of Egypt. So yeah. I saw everything but the original um, January 25th revolution. Yeah, interesting. So I saw Sisi was sort of consolidating power recently. What's happening in Egypt right now? Egypt, Egypt's a really sad case. I think there was that brief time where we were all really hopeful that Egypt was going to transition transition into an actual democracy. Yeah. Um, they had their first democratic parliamentary elections in 2012, and then their presidential elections in 2013 with international monitors. And I would say freedom of speech was better than it had ever been. Um, somebody like the comedian Bassem Youssef was able to freely make fun of Muslim Brotherhood and Mohammed Morsi, the then Islamist president, yeah. with no qualms whatsoever. Nobody was disappearing or getting fired. But the moment the coup happened and then things changed overnight, Bassem Youssef came off air after one episode and nobody understood why, and then he left the country. And then um, an election happened the following year where CC. Um, won, but it was such a sad election that they had to extend it by several days because nobody was going out to vote. And slowly but surely, things just took a, a, a turn for the worse. They were arresting people. They were disappearing people. I would say quite a few of my friends have either been jailed or left, fled the country. Right now, um, famous journalist and activist, a friend of mine named Will Abbas, has been in prison for months now. And on accusation of terrorism charges. The guy's completely harmless. And so this this has been the path of Egypt. But realistically, hindsight, I don't think there really was a chance for democracy. If you look at um, the day after um, Hosni Mubarak stepped down in February 2011, the army stepped down, and that was the day when the Egyptian people lost. There's a deep state in that country. And... That um, it, the Egyptian military is has penetrated all areas of the government and the economy, kind of how the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps has done in Iran. And so there was just no chance, and I think we were a bit naive that things were going to turn out. But at least people had that brief chance um, during those first couple of years. Why can't there be any viable democracies that get established in that region? Well, I think Tunisia actually is a democracy. Okay. I mean, depending on who you talk to, people will say Israel's a democracy. But now after that nation bill that just passed, I don't think people are really seeing it as that way. Um, I think a lot of the reason it's um, you have to look at post-colonial theory. I mean, Egypt's a perfect example of this. Um, the British were in Egypt. They helped buttress the last king of Egypt. And... When things were kind of getting out of control, the CIA helped with the coup, the free officers' coup in um, the early 1950s. This was actually before Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh's coup. Yeah. And they helped establish 
and military governments that exist today in Egypt and is so deeply entrenched that there's no room, they don't allow it to become democratic as we've seen with the coup in 2013. People will say that wasn't a coup, that was a popular revolution. I mean, a coup is a coup. There were tanks everywhere. I was there. There was there were jets flying for weeks showing off in the air with the Egyptian flag colors. You don't a coup and when an army officer steps on in front of the television and has a speech and reads out that they've forced the president to step down, mm-hmm. that sounds like a coup, no matter where you are. But there will still be people that deny that. And so when we talk about democracy in the Middle East, a lot of it's because, unfortunately, the West has had a hand in um, putting these dictators in power, Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein and buttressing them and allowing that to continue. And I'm not saying that it's only America's fault or Britain's fault, but it, a lot of it does have to do with how we, how they drew the lines of these countries in the early 20th century after World War I when they divided it up between Britain and France. And Iraq's a perfect example. They put three um, groups together that shouldn't have been together and they drove a map and called it Iraq and to this day they're suffering because of that yeah. and that's why um, Iraq is the way it is yeah of the reason so right right if we can switch gears to Iran obviously there's a lot going on <laughs> um, on the one hand I've been reading and hearing that as more pressure is exerted on Iran from from the outside the more Iranians will rally around the flag, so to speak, and um, they will uh, unite and empower whoever's standing up to the pressure and that the hardline factions will come out on top. On the other hand, you know, I see more protests happening on a daily basis. Um, As you know, uh, the latest city where protests are happening is Mashhad, I think. There are active protests in Esfahan, Karaj. And some of the chants there are things like death to the dictator, no reformists, no hardliners, this is all ending anyway, Reza Shah, bless your soul. I don't think, I don't know if these are isolated, you know, chants that, that just people record it, but I don't think they are. They sounded like there were a lot of people saying these things. And these are anti-regime chants. They're not chants about unifying behind the hardliners or whoever else in the system. So what's happening here? I mean, these Iranians that are out chanting and protesting since December, January, essentially have very real and legitimate grievances against the Iranian government. Whether it be about the state of the economy, corruption, or just feeling disenchanted with the government itself. So it's, it's been interesting watching it kind of ebb and flow since December. And these numbers aren't quite large. I mean, in terms of geography, and yes, they are, you're seeing provincial towns and cities you haven't heard from since the 1979 revolution, but you're not getting millions of people out on one street like you saw during the 2009 post-election protests. Mm-hmm. So I, I think social media kind of becomes that fog of war, like that fog, I would say, I where people are seeing this from afar, especially Western analysts and journalists, they're kind of looking at this and saying it's the the end of days are near for the Iranian government. I think the reality is very far from that. 
And I'm not discounting the fact that these people have grievances, but I think it's important to acknowledge that there's still 80 million people in that country. And you would need a lot more people out in the street to actually see a big change. Yeah. Could the fact that all of this is getting out on social media and it might be looking a lot bigger than it actually is, could that trigger something? Could that uh, give the perception to others in Iran that this is a big movement and we need to join it and then it leads to something ultimately? Um, well, I mean, these protesters, like I said, have very legitimate grievances, and I think it's quite obvious what they're angry about. At the same time, we have to acknowledge the fact that Iranians have a history of protesting dating back to the late 1800s. I mean, yeah. there was, and then we had the Constitutional Revolution, the 53 coup, the 1979 revolution, and all these mini-protests in between this 1999 student uprising and the 2009 Green Movement. Iranians have, teachers have protested over the years, um, labor workers, rights groups, everybody. There's there's just so much of that. But because of social media, of course, we're in 2018 and people are very um, aware of social media. And then there's messaging app like Telegram. These videos are getting out. And I think, yes, to an extent, putting that out on social media helps push people in the streets as well. And that's why you see the Iranian government going out of its way to push Iranians onto domestic apps like Surush, because they want to control the flow of information. Mm. Um, at the same time, when you're looking at these chants, you're hearing all sorts of different chants, and they're for different reasons. I think we let Iranians, genuinely, generally speaking, like to chant death to a lot of things. And I'm right. not, again, I think they do have legitimate grievances to chant death to the dictator, because Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is a dictator. Um, the chance about Reza Shah, I think that's been very interesting. Yeah. And it's actually been brought up in an interesting, I believe, foreign policy piece about how diaspora satellite television has played a role in that, where they've kind of um, put out this narrative of a perfect dynasty under the Pahlavis, where everything was wonderful. And we have a whole generation of Iranians that were born after the 1979 revolution and after the Iran-Iraq war that have no, recollect, no recollection yeah. of these pains and pangs of revolution and war. So for them, there's a lot to lose yeah. versus parents and their grandparents. So the one argument is that uh, Reza Pahlavi is sort of irrelevant to the country. He's disconnected. But I've been listening to some of his interviews, and a lot of what he says makes a lot of sense from the perspective of democracy, giving people the option to choose their future, um, whether they want a republic or a constitutional monarchy. If they want him to go back, he will, but if they don't, he won't. Is, is he irrelevant, or is that message that he's putting out there resonating at some level with, with the Iranian people? Well, first, let me go back to the chants. When they're chanting about Reza Shah, they're not chanting about him. They're chanting about his grandfather. Right, right, right. No, I understand that. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. They're, but they're related, sort of. Um, Reza Pahlavi has kind of... I don't know where to begin with him because he's such a fascinating character. Here's someone that hasn't been in Iran since he was 17 years old. Right. And I think he's in his late 50s, maybe early 60s. 
And he he's kind of played an interesting role. In the early 2000s, he was rubbing elbows with the neo, neocons, hoping to push regime change in Iran. And now he's kind of playing this player that, yes, I can be whoever you want. There, I mean, I think in any country, whether it's Iran, Egypt, um, a, a lot of, I would say, Middle Eastern countries, there's nostalgia for the past, for the good things. Mm-hmm. You see beautiful pictures of the era of the Shah, where Farah and Muhammad Reza Pahlavi are in these beautiful Western <laughs> style, like monarchy clothes and diamonds, and people in the street are wearing mini skirts. And you look at that, and if you don't know history, yeah. you're like, wow, Iran looked so amazing back then. Like, why would they choose these mullahs that don't know anything and are pushing us 100 years behind, uh, back, back in history? And, and honestly, that's how I thought as a 13-year-old girl. But when you really delve into the history and the facts of what led to the 1979 revolution, you mm-hmm. understand that there's a lot more to it. And going to um, Reza Pahlavi, he still hasn't acknowledged the fact what his father has done. He mm-hmm. won't come out and say his father has tortured people, has disappeared people, has imprisoned people. His father is responsible for the existence of Avian Prison. It was built by the Shah. It wasn't built by the Mullahs. Mm-hmm. So these are little things when you look at it, and you you kind of can't take somebody like that serious. And on top of that, if you really think that you're open to being the president of Iran, and people will argue and say, well, he's never said that. But if you look at his statements, he says it quite a bit. He talks about president or going to Iran or being a leader. If that's something you do, why aren't you? Why are you still using the title, royal title, if you believe in democracy? Mm. Is he actively using the royal title? Why hasn't he um, renounced his title? Mm. I mean, if you believe in true form democracy, why are you parading around as Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi or his his Imperial Highness? And I uh, and I say this because I've had people that met him and. They've called him prince, and then they'll say, no, it's your imperial highness. I mean, if you're correcting people, you haven't been in Iran in over 40 years. I, I can't take somebody like that serious. And yeah, mm. he has following in Iran, but a very small following, again, because of the nostalgia of the Pahlavi dynasty. And he has a following in the West as well. But to say that he's a, a figure that could understand Iran, that could lead Iran, I think is very unrealistic. And and looking at Iraq is a perfect example of that. There were people that were just like the Shah's son who went back to Iran, I mean Iraq, and they couldn't lead the country because they didn't understand how it worked. They didn't understand the bureaucracy behind it. They didn't understand the mentality of the people anymore. Just because you're Iranian and speak a language doesn't mean you understand the ways and means of the lives of people 40 years on. Yeah, yeah. So aside from Reza Pahlavi, do the regime change advocates uh, have, a, have any other plans? Do they have a game plan? Because um, you know, I, when I look at Twitter, they're posting all these things about how the Islamic regime must go. But when I think of that, I, I think of you know what needs to replace it we have the MKO, who's, uh, that's not going to happen, right? Um, <laughs> people in Iran uh, wouldn't allow for that, I think. Uh, and then you have Reza Pahlavi. 
I think there's some considerable support for him, but not really. And I, I, I take your points uh, when, when you say all these things about him. So what, what are they saying? What are they, uh, you know, promoting the, the people in L.A. and D.C. who are really rooting for, for regime change? I don't think, I mean, some, I mean, there are people that are pushing for the Mujahideen al-Khuf. I mean, John Bolton, who is uh, U.S. President Donald Trump's national security advisor, is pushing for him. Rudy Giuliani is pushing for them. Um, there, are, there are some groups in America that are pushing for them. And do, also do they have a chance in hell to, you know, get anywhere or do anything? I think, so, hypothetically, I don't, if the U.S. was involved in some sort of regime change, I don't think the Iranian people really would have a say who shows up. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a real game plan at the same time. I think there's two players right now, Reza Pahlavi and Mariam Rajavi of the MEK. But the reality is when people are writing Islamic regime must go on Twitter or that their, their days are ending and whatnot. I don't think there's a real game plan. And I think that's scary in its own because it's when you have no game plan that things fall apart, that dark forces come to play, that there's a power vacuum. Yeah. And this is, um, this is something that's repeated throughout the Middle East in its own different ways. And that's why Iraq was partly so much of a tragedy was because there was no game plan. They just decided we're going to dissolve the Ba'ath Party because it was associated with Saddam Hussein, but they didn't realize, oh, if I dissolve the Ba'ath Party, I'm going to be putting out hundreds of thousands of people out of the job. Even people that hardly had ties to Saddam Hussein's regime lost their job because they had some sort of forceful tie to the Ba'ath Party. And these same people, because they were out of a job and it was post-war Iraq, they went and joined the militia groups and the jihadists, and some of them later became part of the Islamic State. Mm. And so it's so easy to say you want to end the Assad government, the Islamic Republic. But if you have no game plan, you're going to end up with a war-torn country. You're going to end up with an Iraq or Syria situation. And I think to an extent, Iranians are somewhat arrogant about this. I think there's a sense of Iranian exceptionalism where they think they're too good to be like Arab neighbors, to be like Syria. But I think the reality is that it's very much possible. We have so many ethnic groups in Iran that would easily tear the place up into tiny little parts in own little countries, essentially. Kurdistan would love to have a part of Iran to add to Iraqi Kurdistan. There's the Arabs and, and Arab Iranians on the western border of Iraq. There's Sistan and Baluchistan. I don't think when people are thinking about regime change in Iran, they're really looking at the bigger picture. And again, I, I think a lot of it has to play with, we have this um, sense that we're better than everyone else, unfortunately. Yeah, so what... something that would ever happen to us. Right, right. So what could be a potential game plan? I honestly, like you, I, I really don't know. I mean, every now and then we hear these war drums beating in the distance. And um, my my sense right now is the Trump administration's 12-point Iran policy, which is led by punitive sanction measures, is we cause so much economic pain that there's a political gain, which would essentially mean people going out in the streets and toppling the Iranian government. 
That's a really naive assessment on their part because the Iranian government isn't just a Shah and its generals and some ministers. The Iranian government is a system of governments that was devised by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini in a way to be virtually coup-proof. Yes, you could oust the supreme leader possibly or the president, but could you really get rid of the Islamic Republic itself? There's so many different groups that are involved in this. And at the same time, you have the IRGC, which were essentially made to protect the Islamic Revolution from inside and outside forces. So Khomeini really thought this through, and I don't think the Americans have really thought this one through how this is going to work. So it's interesting to see that they're pushing for this idea, but if this is really their game plan, which is what I'm going to think right now, and I've been thinking in the past few months, I don't think it's going to work. Now, how long will it take for them to realize that? I'm not sure. And if they do realize that that's the case, does that mean they're going to start a war? I don't know. So the alternative would be for the Islamic Republic to remain in place, but then you know, a lot of the problems that the people are having is so rooted in the identity of the Islamic Republic, right? Having an unelected body who has final say on everything, um, the fact that the the regime is theocratic and autocratic by nature. So what's the alternative then? If they stay in power, they can obviously take on some reform, but ultimately, if those fundamental issues don't get resolved you probably face really similar issues in the future. They might put a Band-Aid on what's going on right now, but then they're, they're not really solving the fundamental problems of, of Iran. I mean, that's the sad part. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not very realistic to push for regime change. What you could do is help open Iran up to become more democratic or at least give more rights to its people and treat them better. And also, this systematic corruption. The systematic corruption is, I would say, a separate issue um, that I'm not going to get into because it's something that the West really can't do change without the Iranian government doing it on its own, I would say, because a lot of it is, it has to do with government elites that are involved in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm going to go down the path of change with you for a moment. What the reality is, and this is this has always been my argument, I don't like the Islamic Republic, I don't like the government, but there's reality to it. That the alternative would be a very dark path in an Iraq or Syria-like matter. Mm. Excuse me. But there's also another path as well. And I think that Trump was the perfect person to do this, and I actually argued this in a analytical piece um, before the North Korea summit. I think Trump would have been the perfect person to come into office on day one and said, you know what, Iran, forget what I said about the Iran deal. I would like to open an embassy there. I would like to start relations with you. We should sit down. And I think that the clerics would have been so shocked. Everyone in Iran would have been so shocked. I think the Iranian people would have loved the idea of it for the most part. And I think that the Iranian government would have been so surprised by it and so, like, I don't even know what to do with myself. They'd be 
they might have probably sat down with them at somewhat. There might have been a lot of back and forth about it, but I think the I think that would have been a better option than Trump coming out with his threats and his sanctions and regime change talks. Something that I hate to say it or break it to some of your listeners has been going on for 39 years. Just because Trump is saying it differently doesn't mean it hasn't been done. And Trump thinks he's playing a a smart game by doing this. He really hasn't paid close attention to U.S.-Iran relations for the past 39 years. So I, I think that had Trump taken a different route with Iran, it would have maybe set um, a different tone in Tehran. Because we have to remember, Iran Iran's more of a defensive country. When you attack Iran, it gets more on the defense. It makes a lot of, it does a lot of saber rattling, it harasses boats in the Persian Gulf, it starts arming its proxies more. But when Iran feels at ease, where it feels like people aren't constantly threatening them with war and regime change, I think that would give more comfort on a governmental level, and that would also leave the people to kind of live freer. And at the same time, we have to look at this for a minute. When you're sanctioning a country and they're not doing well economically, what do people on a day-to-day basis think about? They think about how to get by, how to feed families, how to find jobs. But when a country is doing well, where it's flourishing on an economic level, what happens to the people? They start saying, well, I have I have my Nununamak, I have my bread, I have my life, I have a roof over my head, what should I do now? Oh, I should think about my rights. I should think about democracy. I should think about change. But when people are struggling to get by, they don't have time to think about that. And I know people will say, well, what about these protests? These protests have come and gone. And they will continue to come and go. But if you really want to have a systematic change, you have to allow the people to flourish. And until they can't flourish, you're not going to see a big change. Can we stay on the topic of Trump? Is there any logic to what Trump says or does? Is this calculated in, or in any way? Because it just seems like he's just flying by the seat of his pants, right? Because he had the all-caps tweet threatening President Rouhani, and then about a week later he came out and said... He'll meet with them and with no preconditions. Secretary Pompeo had to come out and set preconditions. So it's just, a, it feels like it's a jumbled mess and there's real no real strategy. What's what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we're seeing is what I call the North Korea playbook or what a lot of us are calling the North Korea playbook, which is fire... A fire and fury-like tweet, which was threatening a population of 80 million with annihilation, and then saying, oh, yeah, we'll talk to them. And then having your secretary of state try to clean up the mess and be like, actually, he'll talk to them after they change their behavior. So it, it, from the get-go, I think we've understood what the Trump administration is. Trump says something that his... Um, cabinet doesn't know he's going to say. He just does his own thing. He'll tweet something, he'll say something in a presser, and it'll totally catch his administration off guard, and they'll have to do cleanup. Um, At the same time, I think there's a good understanding where this is all going. Um, John Bolton, ever since he's taken over, 
has had a point policy actually I think it's published on your it's published online it's on either the national review or the national interest which is basically how to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal what's a sanction and so on and so forth and so it's very public knowledge what they were planning to do and so they're banking on that these sanctions are going to really change things on the ground and they do look at these protests very closely, and they think that if they tweet stuff out, which is what Secretary of State Pompeo has been doing, which is also what Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has also been doing, they think if they show this support because Obama didn't do this during the Green Movement, rightfully so, because it helped um, delegitimize the protesters as being um, made up by the foreign hand and page agents of the CIA or Mossad, they think that if they do this, this is enough to topple the government. Yeah. But if it's an org, if it's something in an organized manner, it's it's kind of hard to say because Trump kind of goes on the beat of his own drum, even when his officials hand him little five point papers telling him what to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So uh, before we sign off, can you talk a little bit about the Iranist? I just signed up for it a couple of days ago, by the way. But uh, I'd like to hear what that project is all about from your own words. Sure. Um, I started The Iranist in 2015. I realized that there's a lot of news coming out of Iran. And back then it wasn't called fake news, but there was a lot of that too. Uh, and it was every week there was just something happening that was Iran-related. And I realized that it would be a great opportunity to kind of curate this news as somebody that already reads it every day and put it together in a newsletter format after I'd seen, I don't know if you've heard of this, the skin, mm-hmm. uh, the, the app, right? It's a, it's a, it's not an app. It is an app, but it's an actual newsletter and it's mostly geared towards women where it kind of explains news every day. And I kind of like the way that was going and I was, I wanted to do something for Iran as well. And I've, I've enjoyed doing it for the past three years. It's helped keep me on top of the news. So nothing really gets by me every week <laughs> now for the past three years. But it's also a, a, a tough task of sitting there hours just writing it up and finding the best articles. But yeah, it's, it's free. That's the great thing. You can sign up at www.theuranus.com. And it comes um, to your mailbox every Friday at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I look forward to uh, receiving it. So uh, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I can imagine with the Iran news cycle and everything that's happening and all your responsibilities, how busy you are. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, Salman. It was great talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode to be productive and interesting. If you did, please share it with your family and friends and review the podcast on iTunes or any of the other platforms. And stay tuned for a lot more great guests coming up. Thanks and take care.